Morning Reliance. Happy Father's Day. Uh, today we'll be reading from Genesis 6, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 17. And if you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Thank you. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Um, I had the wonderful privilege of having a great father. I got to see him yesterday, and I'm truly thankful for the role that he played in my life, shaping me, and, and I know many of you as well. Um, there's good day. It's a, today's a good day, as Greg announced, even in the beginning of our service. Even today, I, I as even reflect, God has even been gracious, not only to our families, and to continue to provide good fathers, um, but also, he's been kind to our nation in that 
he's redeemed us from some of our depravities. It's June 19th. Remember, our own nation once enslaved a people based on their color. Um, And we're gracious and we thank and praise God that he has sanctified us as a nation from these things in a general way. Not that we are free from the depravity of our sin and continue to oppress people in other ways. Um, But even as I reflect, even when we had the convention this last week where messengers gathered, like the Southern Baptist Convention participated in these things. And I'm grateful that God doesn't just let us go wayward into our sin, but he is gracious and then specifically gracious to us in Christ Jesus. You can't get around in light of this too. You recognize in this whole situation here in Genesis chapter 6, a corruption that's pretty depraved. And I find it here within Christian tradition, I think it is rather very important to note something about the story. We read these We call it the Noah's Flood or Noah's Ark. We read them to our children and they are very familiar to our own minds. But as parents, as co-workers, as teachers who go back out into the world, you will be faced with the question and have to come to realize how to respond to to the concerns that might come from this passage. I find myself asking it. But it, you cannot avoid it. The most devastating, catastrophic event this world or creation has ever experienced was due to the result of God's hand. The scripture will not let you get out of it. Uh, there are times in which we look at the stories within scripture and try to put them in the natural disaster category. Rather than putting it in the category of God's response towards his creation, specifically humanity. And you're not going to be able to put the flood in the natural category. And yet, you will ask, your co-workers, your family, your children will ask, did God really flood the earth? Did he really consider destroying every, on an atomic level, every Man, woman, child, baby, bird, cow, horse. Did he decide to destroy 99.9% of life? Did God really orchestrate this? That's why I think it's interesting as we read our children's stories of the Noah's flood. It's, um, when you read it from beginning to end, I didn't have... Brandon, read three chapters for us this morning. I had him stop at verse 17 because I think it signifies the beat of the author as he will continue to stress God's initiation in this event. Um, Probably should stop calling it Noah's flood or Noah's ark because that is fictitious. It wasn't Noah who determined the reason for needing an ark. It wasn't Noah who determined the dimensions of the ark. The author doesn't let us guess on who defines who gets to go in or what gets to go in the ark when the rains begin to fall. It's not Noah who calls the rains down. It's not Noah who closes the door 
It's not Noah who dictates the purpose of the waters, nor is it Noah who blots out specifically every last breath who's outside of the ark. One of the reasons why we must read the Old Testament is to rightly align our perspective of God in light of ourselves. Because it gives us a response of understanding. It stretches our minds, so to speak, on realizing who God is and his response towards humanity. What I'd like to do is try to ask the question or respond to the question, did God really flood the earth? And why? Early on, when we started in ministry, there was a local pastor that I didn't know yet. And in the church plant, you just take anybody you can, because it was me and Adam. And uh, along the way, there was a, a wonderful couple that came and uh, we do this, I do this at times, we're all prone to this. But as they started interacting with us and we asked the question, why are you here and not at your previous church? The way that they presented their previous pastor shaped my own mind of that individual. And I actually became critical of that pastor. And I finally eventually had to start meeting with him weekly only to realize, oh, he's not like they say he is. I wonder in some ways if that's like this, what the flood is about. It's, as you go through it, and we're all prone to this, I'm not using that example to say that I'm not guilty of that as too. But there are ways that you go into your co-workers' places or your families where we look at the flood story and we see God and we align him in a way that he isn't. And as the writer places before us God's response in the flood, I don't know if it's God's defense for the reader or why he responded in such a, a, a catastrophic way towards this sin and depravity. When we read it, we better align ourselves with who God is and not what we make up the perceptions of what we might think he is. And we allow the text to teach us who God is in light of our fallenness. See, as I've said, I've said a lot already. It's not Noah's flood, it's not Noah's ark, it's God's, and God doesn't let himself get out of the situation. Look at verse 17, he says it twice. Behold, I, even I. He's taking ownership of this entire situation. I am going to bring the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven Everything that is on the earth shall perish. So you don't get to take the flood narrative and put it in the natural disaster category. It's a divinely orchestrated event which God is using to accomplish his intent and his desire. The question we have to ask is why? Why did he do this? And the reality is, is that the author is gracious to us, gracious to us to provide in this first point the corruption of man. And you're going to see this in the first four, four verses of chapter 6. But before I get to it, let me load this up and just remind ourselves where we've come up before. Because up to Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 6, there's this repeated situation with the fallenness of man. And the fallenness of man is due to the result of this discontentment of being, being merely human. 
and striving to be like God. This is what actually deceives Eve. When the serpent says, you can eat of the fruit. You surely will not die, but you'll be like God. And it was that deception or that desire to strive to be like God which resulted in the fall of all of humanity. In fact, you can see, as I stressed last week, as, as Eve gives birth to Cain, the seed of arrogance and pride, she aligns herself or equates herself to God in the birth of Cain, Genesis 4.1. Now the man had marital relations with his wife Eve. Now notice her response. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And then she said, I have created a man just like the Lord did. And as Cain inherits this seed of arrogance, it grows and it manifests itself into the preceding generations, ultimately the point where Lamech is deciding how many wives he can uh, have and how many cities he can build, and he strives, and all of humanity, not just Cain or Eve or Lamech, but there's this preceding sin of disobedience where man is not content with being merely human and striving to be like God. And as God perceives this, the scene is heightened to in Genesis chapter 6 with this, with this seed of arrogance. And when the Lord looks down, Genesis 6, 5, this is what he sees. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis six twelve. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The word there, if you were to read, we'll come back to um, these verses, especially 6, verses 11 through 13, but the word corrupt appears four times. And the word corrupt means is that, is that man in their purpose to be like God has essentially ruined everything. The idea of destroying. And if you remember in the Genesis how all this is woven together, that God created man in his likeness to be the reflection of the invisible God physically upon creation. Now man has strived to be like God and consider the ways of truth in their own minds. They are actually purposefully walking contrary, destroying everything, even the earth itself. Well, what is the... What is the significant example that the reader provides for us that would actually result in God wanting to flood the earth? The response of this is in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. For a Western mind, I might prepare you. It might feel a little bizarre, but I want you to consider it with me anyway. Now, verse 1, chapter 6. What would lead God to flood the earth and annihilate? Destroy everything that had breath. Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. That's, that's okay. Producing children is not what's wrong here. Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took wives for, this, for themselves whomever they choose. The reader has come to read 
a new phrase or a new words used up, not have not have been used up to this point. The phrase is "sons of God." Man, the commentaries love this segment. In fact, every once in a while, um, yeah, uh, you can entertain a discussion on this for quite some time on who are the sons of God. In fact, jump down with me to verse 4. The result of this relationship between the sons of God and the daughters of men produced the Nephilim. It's a cool word. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And whatever this, these two relationships were, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Question the reader has to ask themselves is who is the sons of God and why would this be a destructive thing? Got to remind ourselves that there has been this repeated theme throughout the book of Genesis that man is discontent with being merely human and striving to be like God, which has led to three different interpretations. The first is that the sons of God are indeed angelic creatures in which the, men, the sons of daughters were inter, or, uh, becoming intimate with the angelic realm. And as a result of this, their offspring became the Nephilim. Now, as bizarre as that sounds for a Western mind, I caution you with this. This is the historical position that the church has held in light of this reading. Is that there is, a fall, there is women now interacting with the angelic realm intimately. In more modern periods, we have had taken two other traditions. One has seen that the sons of God and the sons of the daughters of men were, were of the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And just as we see in the New Testament, it is unwise and it is wrong for a man to marry a woman who is not a follower of Christ. They become unequally yoked. And so you have the sons of God who are interacting and abandoning their convictions in God as they perceive the world in front of them. And men of renown, men of old, who can protect and guard. That these women are going to for protection. God perceives this interaction and he is disappointed. The third option is that humans are, the sons of God are kings and rulers. The problem with option two and three is that these definitions never fit the realm of sons of God out in the Old Testament. Of the eight occurrences, Son of God points out in the Old Testament. Let me be nerdy for a second, because I think sets up the tone for the flood. Why God responds this way. But of the eight occurrences in the Old Testament that refers to the sons of God, it refers to principalities, angelic realm. Fact. When you read Judge, Judge, Jude, excuse me, not Judges, Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2 verse 4, your interpretation is dependent on you understanding that the sons of God is angelic beings. And if you don't choose it there, then it inter, and you don't accept this here, then it, in, it, it plays an impact in your hermeneutic there. Now, I understand for a Western mind, who does not entertain angels in the present realities, as we might think, this might seem bizarre. But we do know that the interaction that the angelical community once had was closer than it once is now. 
And we have the scene laid out before us. And this is the tradition I hold. I try to get out of my Western mind and allow the text to teach me what's going on. And so I read it this way. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that sons of God, the angelic realm, was interacting intimately with the daughters of men who were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. Why did they do this? Because up to this point, it's not hard for us to understand that mankind was discontent with being merely human and representing God physically upon creation and yet we see uh, this this desire to strive to be like God and as a result of this we're seeing the heightened attitude of the daughters of men wanting to be like God by bridging the angelic divine angelic hosts and trying to be strive to be God through that way and God sees it and it's destroying the earth and it's ruining what man was created to be to reproduce according to their kind. And if God doesn't respond towards this wickedness, the earth will be ruined. And it will be ruined, so he ruins it ahead of schedule. Okay, that's, that's the situation as I understand it and I hold to it. And I, I caution you why I imagine that some may be bizarre. Like, let me step back. Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story? Uh, Abraham tries to keep the Lord from destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, I don't know if he argues, but he says, if you see 50 righteous people, will you save the city? And God's like, yeah. And he brings it on to 10. If you see 10 righteous people, will you preserve the city? And he ultimately, there's no righteous people except for Lot and his family. And two angelic hosts go into the Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember how the men of that city responded to the angel angels who were present in Sodom and Gomorrah? While Lot guarded and protected them in his house, the men in the night said, Give us the angels within your homes. For what do we want to do with them? They wanted to rape them. So you could say my position is bizarre, or the historical church's position is bizarre, but it will impact your later reading of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? To this day, we cannot see it. Because man was discontent with being merely human, representing God as he defined, and they strove to be like him. And Lot even offered up his own daughters in replace of the angels, and they refused him. Why? Because men strive to be like God. As a result of this, now I think we understand verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. They had no desire to represent the invisible God physically upon creation. They were striving to be like, the, like him and doing whatever is necessary to acquire it. And this is why, look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry. It's almost the word for repentance. He's grieved. That he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from the man to the animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made 
man made them. That, that's that's the first point. So when we ask, when we get asked by our two-year-old, or two-year-olds are learning to talk, but let's say a four-year-old, did God really flood the earth? I think it's helpful that the author does give us some assistance to why. God's not vindictive. He doesn't just decide one day to flood the earth. It's helpful for our children to recognize that God does indeed take sin seriously. But the, the corruption which is displayed before us is not just in one party, part of a city, but it's throughout the whole earth. And there's no hope. In light of this, God, point two, is gracious to establish his retribution upon the earth. You might say, well, how is this gracious? Well, it's gracious in the, in the sense of verse 8. God had every right to eliminate humanity off the earth. They have failed to represent the invisible God physically before all creation. Look at verse 8. Genesis Chapter 6, verse 8, but God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He's going to be contrasted between these, these son, the daughters of sons of men, and Noah's going to be put on the other side. They are godless, but he is righteous. Look at verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. There is one in the narrative story who is representing the invisible God physically before all creation. But don't do what I do and assume now, now this is now a story. No. God has seen. He has evaluated. Now he has favored Noah. The word favor is Grace. He has seen Noah, and here is one whom he is willing to bestow grace. And in this account, God is going to orchestrate, even in his retribution, grace not just to Noah, but to humanity. And he is willing so much to take the steps that he is taking to, to, to eliminate 99.9 of his creation to preserve point one of creation through Noah. And what dwells upon the earth, on, on the ark. All I want to do now, I want to do what we've done in Sunday school classrooms. I just want to walk through the story. And I want to hear God's emphasis of his role in this event. And I want to, part two of this, consider Noah. So God is the, in the forefront and Noah's in the background. But I want to learn, why is it that Noah was considered righteous and blameless? What was he doing that made him unique and contrary to the rest of the world? And so this rhythm of God's emphasis and his role in it will not be lost. It's a not a natural consequence. It is God's divine retribution and he, as he lays it out. So start with me in verse 11 already hinted at it already what the word corrupt means but it's this idea of to destroy four times you recognize it now the earth was corrupt destroyed in the sight of god the earth was filled with violence so god looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt it's done 
There's no purpose left for it. For all flesh had destroyed or corrupted the way of the earth. So God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all life has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about, and it's the same word, corrupt. I'm about to destroy what they have destroyed. But I'm going to destroy them with the earth. I'm going, to fa- I'm going to take where they're at and fast forward it, and I'm just going to end it now. And so in verses 14, 15, and 16, God reveals to Noah how to build this ark. And reminds Noah that uh, um, it's him who's orchestrating these events. So verse 17 again. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood upon the earth. To destroy all flesh in which there is in the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But in the midst of his retribution, there's this grace, this promise of a relationship, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. God is dictating the whole thing. I hope we don't miss this when we read it. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. To every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Like, as a child, how does the we ask the question, how does it, the animals get to the ark? God brought them to the ark. Not only does he see his creation, he is sovereign over his creation. He's able to preserve his creation. He's able to give grace to his creation. Build an ark, Noah. I'll bring the animals to it. Verse 21. As for you, take for yourselves some of all food which is in the edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. And then we get a hint. What you see next in verse 22 is unique to the reader. For six chapters, we have seen God's command. Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. If you don't take hold of your sin and repent, heed my words, it will conquer you. Up to this point, we have not seen what it is for a man to be found righteous. Why? Because they constantly are discontent with being merely human and strive to be like God. Verse 22, the window opens for the reader. What is it like to be as God created us? Why was he a righteous man? Thus Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. When you hear the command of God, what makes a righteous man righteous? By responding in obedience. Why was Noah favored? Because he obeyed. Chapter 7, this theme pops up over and over and over again, at least three times to my count. Before the flood is inaugurated, he tells all the animals and his family to get into the ark. 
And he stresses once again, I'm going to blot out all those who have breath on the land. Noah builds the ark. Verse 5, you see Noah's response again. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. But Noah is not the only one who, when the Lord speaks, obeys. Even the, the, the writer is trying to strive. It's not just Noah, but the animals were doing this as well. Verse 8, of the clean animals and the animals that are not, not, are not clean, and the birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there, they went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Third time, as the rains came down and they were all entered into the, the ark, as the author stresses it a third time in verse 16, as the floods came, those that entered, verse 16, male and female of all flesh entered as God commanded him. And the, clo- the Lord closed it behind him. There's a contrast here. You've got the sons of men inter- inter- interacting with, this, with the angelic realm purposely going contrary to the standards of God. But you have Noah and all the creation which has been drawn to the ark being preserved. Why? Because they're acting obedient. This is the longest story up to this point that we've read to stress this point. And after verse 16, as we've witnessed what it's like to be obedient to the commands of God, we see the floods come down. I used to do this. Like, I used to read the, the flood in a scientific lens. So I would study, is there enough water? Because here in a second, it's going to say that the waters were so far above the highest peaks. And I often would say, think to myself, is there enough water to actually flood the earth? What helped me is understanding a word here that occur, again occurs four times. And before I read this next section to watch, and the reason why I'm reading the portions that I've decided to read is I want you to read it. Right? Um, it's okay to hear my voice, and but the, the parts that we read from the Scripture are the most, they're just inerrant. We don't, we know this is God's Word. But as much as I want to explain, prevail is this, this idea that God used water. It's a term that's used for army. Like when, when God said army and they would prevail over a city, the means by which to get and conquer the city was the army. God decided to flood the waters, or flood the world through waters, and the waters are his armies. And in Genesis chapter 1, like, God creates water. He can make enough water to flood the earth. And he uses the water as his military means to eliminate life on the earth. Verse 17. In light of the violence and arrogance of men. And the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. And the waters increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Verse 18. The water prevailed. It's the first time. So how is God using the water? He, he's using it. This is not a natural disaster. That's the point. 
The waters are his instrument by which he is going to establish his retribution. The water prevailed, increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. The reader's not left wondering how they got so high. God's using the waters. All flesh, verse 21, that moved on the earth perished. Birds, and cattle, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarmed upon the earth and all mankind. And all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. What an eerie feeling that would have been. Just silence. Like, we're, we're, left, we're all that's left. Together with those that were on with him in the ark were only preserved. One last time, the author wants you to see it. The water prevailed. One. Upon the earth, 150 days. One of the reasons why I like reading it, it does something in my heart. God judges sin. Even in this culture where it's like, when I sin against my wife or my children or my friends, like, it's between you and me. And what you're going to learn throughout all the scriptures is that when man sins, he's sinning essentially against God. Like, one of the reasons why enslaving men, because of the base of their color, to oppress an individual because of their color, hinders them from doing what God had called them to do. And so while it is an egregious sin against them, it's ultimately against God who has created man to represent the invisible God physically before creation. And so then man takes his own might, striving to be like God and dictate for man how they must live. The offense is, yes, indeed, to man, but it is offense to God. When it comes to a man being faithful to his wife, while he might wrong his wife or his, other, or his spouse, the offense is to God alone because God is faithful and man is to represent the invisible God physically before creation. And this is what David says when he is unfaithful to his, and it takes Bathsheba in the psalm. He says, I have sinned against you alone, God. Because he has failed to represent the invisible God before all of creation. And God takes that misrepresentation of him seriously. I live in a culture which says the majority gets to define what right and wrong is. Just vote. 
And the majority then will define who the right guy or the right moral issue might be. Raising children, even myself, is tempted to it. It must not be that bad if everyone is doing it. Even churches. The writer is like conflicted. Or the, the individual who reads this seriously is conflicted. Would I be Noah? Like everything, the whole system that we live in is determined by whether you're in the majority of opinion. Whether it be in the school system, the colleges, the workplaces, the social platforms, the news. Where is the majority at? God could care less. He favors the one who is, God said it, so I do it. And through the one man's righteous obedience, it saves humanity. I caution you, young adults, adults, if God has spoken clearly on certain matters, your response is not to be concerned of how the world perceives it, but rather how you can represent the invisible God before your creation by obeying His commands. Because God takes sin seriously. He takes unique position of man who's been created in his image and his likeness seriously. And if there's no one to represent him, he'll take care of the problem. That God is often not even addressed even in the pulpits. So we like passages like John three sixteen for God so loved the world. And he does. He loves the world because it's his cosmic temple in which he has placed man to represent him physically before all creation. Psalms uh, 14, 1. The position even still after the flood as God looks upon creation has not been good even since the days of Noah. Psalms 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are, there's that word, corrupt. You can determine whether one is living righteous or not by whether they believe in God at all. Believe in God and in God's instruction. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. This is God's perspective of humanity. There is no one who does good. This is written after Noah. Praise God for the rainbow. Which God said he will never flood the earth even though this exists. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Elijah should sound familiar. Romans 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Yet he favored Noah. He was gracious towards Noah. Why? Because Noah did what God said he would. God, God said, build an ark. Okay. Build with animals. Okay. Get in it. Okay. I can't shut the door. I'll get it. He is literally, he's living literally, utterly dependent upon God so as to be the representation of the invisible God physically to creation. And who's in the boat? Creation. I want you to notice, I feel like we run out of time. Always happens when you try to cover three chapters. Genesis 8, verse 1. In the midst of all this retribution and in response towards the depravity of humanity, God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth. And the water subsided. We're brought back to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning was God. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. God has preserved his creation by lifting it above the retribution of his wrath in an ark. And he remembered. How did the floods recede? By God's hand. How did they get lifted up? By God's hand. And so God caused a wind pass over the earth and Noah waits he waits he sends out a few birds this is Jacob's paraphrase for the sake of time he sends out a few birds look at verse 15 and he waits then God spoke to Noah saying go out of the ark <laughs> Noah's cool we haven't seen up to this point an individual who is utterly living dependent upon God for everything. We might have thought it was Adam and Eve. Maybe we thought it was Cain. Maybe we thought it was Seth. Maybe we, none like this of great detail is provided to us until Noah. Go. Go out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. This is the command that we read in Genesis. Like I've, I've wiped the slate clean. There's no man on the earth who strives now and every thought to do violence and evil, go, multiply, and fill the earth. Live in the ways that you have up to this point by obeying my commands. Look at verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wives, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast of every creeping thing, every bird of everything that moves on the earth went out by their families, from the ark. It's pretty cool. You have a man presented to you in three chapters. Sadly, I don't have the time. In chapter 9, he, he fails. But up to this point, the writer has provided us an example of what it looks like to live utterly dependent upon God even when God is judging the world. Build an ark. Get in the ark. Stay in the ark. 
wait, wait, now you can go. And in every way, Noah was favored because of his obedience to the constructions or commands of God. Three, our convictional response. Thank, thank you. What do you do with this? The next verse is our convictional response. For the first time, the reader observes Noah doing something that God hasn't asked him to do. Imagine, the world has now been recreated. It's all yours, Noah. Multiply and fill the earth. It's, now it's time to live without violence and the, the things of the people before. Such opportunity lies ahead of him. Look at verse 20, what he does. As he comes out of the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. For the first time, we witness Noah doing something that God told him didn't necessarily require of him to do. He worships in an extravagant way. And as the animals who gave birth while on the ark, he takes the firstborn of all those arks or of all those animals and he kills them. As an offering to know that God is the one who preserves and creates creation itself. Knowing that he should have been one who had been conquered by the waters. And in light of the opportunity, he worships freely. In light of the salvation he's enjoyed. That's convicting. Because I'm told, go to church. Go to a small group. Serve in the church community. And if you know our intent here at Reliance... We're pushing people to good things, but it ain't worship unless we're doing it out of a heart of worship and thankfulness. For the first time, Noah's doing it without being told to do it. Because of the gratitude of what he's realized he's enjoyed or experienced, he was lifted above the waters, saved from the wrath of God, so as to be set aside by grace to inherit and be the one who represents the invisible God physically to creation. And the means by which he got to that position was by the grace of God. That he worships. And I know what you're thinking. Like the Lord's response is, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma of this gratitude. The sacrifice, the significant sacrifice that was placed before him. And the Lord, God talks to himself. This is what he says, right? I will never again curse the ground on the count of men. Even though that for the intent of men's heart is evil from his youth, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and the day and night shall not cease. And God establishes the rainbow as this covenantal relationship with humanity as a result of one man's worship. And gratitude. What do we leave with? I know we don't do sacrificial systems today, 
to be awkward if we had a, a, an altar up here where we sacrifice it. We, we recognize that. But we know that in light of the salvation which has occurred for us in Christ Jesus, just as the ark was lifted above the water, so was Christ lifted above the earth on a cross made out of wood, just as the ark was made out of wood. He atoned for our sins, taking the retribution of God in our place. And we have experienced the grace of God through the sacrifice. And as we ponder the cross regularly, Paul has fixated on the cross and its significance. And it's through that lens that he learns how to have an attitude of worship. We strive to read and consider these things in Romans 12. We went through that whole section. It's through that reflection of being saved by the grace of God from the wrath due to us. Paul writes in Romans 12:1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The, significant, uh, the significance of Noah's offering is that it was a burnt offering. It means when you burn it, it was consumed, gone. No taking a 10% for yourself. And in light of the salvation that we have as received in Christ, Paul sets that same standard. You're now the burnt offering in which you are to represent the invisible God physically before creation in worship in light of knowing what he has done for you. And God has given us commands, and so we do, just as God, Noah did. But in light of all those doings, I pray that we would even ponder these things when Noah had all the opportunities, the world literally in front of him, the first thing he did was worship. And that's why we gather on the first day of the week, every week. It's because God deserves our best and the first part of it. And it's not just that. We can extend it to every part of our life so that God might use it. Let's pray. Lord, you, you will say within Scripture that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And there is this plague which, which exists in our society which makes light of our sin. We don't grieve our sin as much as we do in, as once we once did. We make light of it because now it's, our sins are in the popular opinion. But Lord, if you have spoken clearly and we have not responded in obedience, just as the Old Testament and the New Testament has proclaimed, you will deal with it. You, just as Paul wrote, you will render according to every man's deeds. Lord, you found favor on Noah and you have found favor on us in providing us a Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as you favored us, Noah, by giving us an ark, you have given us even a greater thing, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that in light of contemplating as we continue to grow, in light of the gospel and the truths of your grace, Lord, may we be first obedient, 
but also may we be a people that respond in genuine worship, not because you've told us to, but because that's our response in light of what we've come to realize what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.